0: to
1: Constructive Curiosity, a podcast that promotes personal growth, authenticity, and helping others through inspirational messages, techniques for success, and interviews with extraordinary people. Follow and subscribe on YouTube and Instagram at Constructive Curiosity or listen on your preferred podcast platform. The journey begins now.
0: and welcome into Constructive Curiosity. I'm joined by two awesome guests today from Libby. It's going to be Brant Bailey and Andrea Braden. How are you all doing?
1: Good. How you doing?
0: Doing great. Doing fantastic. I'm assuming you guys have better weather down there in the Atlanta area than I have up here in Northern Kentucky.
1: Mildly maybe? <laughs> I don't know. It's a little cold for us. We were just talking about that yesterday, how we, we could never live anywhere cold because the 30 degrees is scaring us off already. <laughs>
0: Yes, I miss living in the South for the nice weather this time of year. We had snow on Halloween. That was not fun.
1: Yeah, you're definitely doing
0: worse than us then. Yeah, Yeah,
1: we're better than that.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So tell us about Libby.
1: Yeah, I guess I'll I'll take a stab at this. I'll try to keep it brief. So Libby uh, is my baby. Um, That is now Brant's baby too. But Libby is a company that started out of Emory University. So by way of background, I'm an OB-GYN. Um, I practiced for 12 years in academic medicine and just left um, my job at Emory University as an associate professor of OB-GYN to do Libby full-time with Brandt. And um, basically it is a company that is based around empowering breastfeeding moms to meet their own breastfeeding goals. And we do that by creating a wearable breast milk sensor. Um, so we are a device. The sensor is matched with an AI Um, informed app that helps you use the data that you put into it from the sensor to give you more informed choices about how you feed your baby so that you just know what you're doing. So I think Brant should probably give you the analogy that (laughs) takes all of that mumbo jumbo and makes it more um, understandable because he said this to me the other day and I've I've stolen the analogy. So go ahead. What are we doing? Basically,
2: I had an old truck that had a broken gas gauge. And so I, I equate it to Uh, You were always anxious because, A, I never drove it a lot, and B, I couldn't remember the last time I filled it up. So I was always anxious I was going to run out of gas, and I was, like, probably overfilling it and overdoing it um, just to make sure I didn't break down on the side of the road or run out of gas on the side of the road, I should say. And so I I kind of equate the mother's journey to they're, they're anxious about their supply because they don't have a gas gauge, like.
1: Yeah. And I mean, so right now, as, as it stands, there's really no way to tell how much milk is in your body. And so what I see as an OBGYN is tons of anxiety and depression around your milk supply and always trying to do all these things to to keep up and make sure that you, you're not starving your baby. Um, and so Libby is the first product out there that actually gives you real-time insights into how you're doing so that you can... Calm down, relax a little bit. Know that you're doing okay because most of the time people are doing okay, um, and really help with the number one reason that people stop breastfeeding um, early, which is perceived insufficient milk supply, which is just the fear of not having enough milk, which turns into actual not having enough milk. Um, so, so yeah, it started at the university. Um, I was I was looking for somebody to fix the breast pump actually. You know, and Emory has a Georgia Tech collaboration and um, they told me there were students there who needed projects and i'm like somebody should fix this breast pump because it's terrible and at the time i was breastfeeding the third of five kids and i was like i can't believe i'm still dealing with this stuff um, and flash forward several years uh, applied for a grant funding program we ended up getting almost four hundred thousand dollars in non-dilutive grant funding just to kind of get the product started and Many eons later, I convinced this wonderful man to join me in life and in business. <laughs> and so Brent now is our COO, um, and he has such an ideal background for just kind of organizing all the business things. But it's it's been a wild ride and we're so excited.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'll say like, the yeah. journey has been kind of winding to get here too. It started off as a breast pump innovation company. Then we pivoted to an app based company to help women in their breastfeeding journey. And, and that was mainly due to, uh, I think you, <laughs> or uh, you were having a baby. Oh yes. The co-founder was having a baby. So bandwidth was really low. We we kind of thought that that could be a, a good route to go. Um, the further we went down that path though, we were like, the, we we need to pivot back to something else that's more tangible. And so along comes the sensor idea to actually sense what's going on in the mother's body um, and, and help them reach their goals. So like. We've pivoted again. So, you know, in terms of lessons learned, it's, you know, we look back and we're, you know, obviously we wish we had gone straight to the sensor to start with, but, you know, it seems like this is kind of a small business uh, startup type of thing where we just stumble our way through it until we land on what it is that actually speaks to the market and what we're doing. Yes.
1: Product market fit. We feel like we finally nailed it now and we're we're headed in the right direction. Mm -hmm. So.
0: And that's just kind of what you got to do in those situations. You got to find what's right, what the niche is, what the product actually needs to be for the market. And being a father of four, you know, we talked about before we started here. And my wife's been a doula. She's done breastfeeding. That is huge. This is going to be groundbreaking for that community, people who want to breastfeed. And I feel like most people probably do. They want to try mm-hmm. it. But like you mentioned, Andrea, they get intimidated. Or somebody says, well, your baby's not getting enough food they are it's a natural process and now you can feel comfortable knowing that it's not just hearsay it's not an old you know example from people from generations past because i feel like that's a big stigma to it for a lot of the older generations absolutely
1: well. yeah absolutely yeah.
0: this product's going to give you the ability to actually know and
1: see. yeah and and i want to point out one other really distinguishing feature that we have in our company is that you know as an OBGYN, i know the person who's making the milk really well. Like I follow people throughout their whole pregnancy and the postpartum, I know the anxiety, depression, I know the risk factors for, you know, things that can make your milk supply lower when that actually is the case. Um, And I forgot to mention, I'm actually an IBCLC, so I'm a board certified lactation consultant as well, which is kind of weird for a doctor, but I did that. Um, So (laughs) I'm technically (laughs) a breastfeeding medicine specialist if we had to pick something, Mm -hmm. but that just means that instead of the focus being all on like this part of a woman's body, you know, just the breast, and everything's focused around that and feeding the baby. Um, we're taking a mom first approach, and we're taking in all of those common risk factors to depleting your milk supply early, like sleep and illness and um, not eating enough, not drinking enough, and kind of putting that at the forefront to help the users know that like, hey, you're normal. And this is what happens when you don't drink 16 glasses of water a day. You know, there are little behavioral changes that we're trying to affect and almost create healthy breastfeeding habits to help people meet their own goals. Um,
2: Well, and I think the other idea to help remove anxiety is to show a pattern over the day so like maybe the mother produces more milk in the mornings versus the evenings and they start to think there's a problem because they don't have as much in the evenings when the total throughout the day is exactly what the baby needs so we're like you're doing fine just stay the course
0: yeah just don't get too uppity about it and i know something my wife used to always mention to me was you know a lot of the medical community and i can't speak where i'm not in the medical community But they do feel, you know, if the baby's fine, if the baby's good, that's all that matters. But it's a very symbiotic relationship between the mother Mm -hmm. and the baby. And if you don't worry about the mother, the baby is going to suffer. So you got to go both ways with that.
1: This is such a point of contention in my field. And I actually agree with your wife. Um, And it's an interesting time to be an OBGYN because I think even in my training, we were taught that you know, we, we basically repeated this all the time, healthy mom, healthy baby. That's all that matters. Like you should be happy because you're a healthy mom and you have a healthy baby. And, you know, honestly, that is probably where my advocacy began, you know, 14 years ago with, with my first baby, I had a baby in residency and I kind of made fun of people with birth plans. I'm ashamed to say, you know, we were all (laughs) like, whatever, that's an automatic C-section. If you have a birth plan, LOL. Um, And I did have a healthy mom, healthy baby, beautiful labor and what shocked me was i couldn't talk about it for a year without crying and i couldn't figure out why i was so upset and why my birth experience mattered because i had been taught as a an obgyn that that part doesn't matter at all and it changed me as a doctor it changed the way i looked at my patients it changed the the care that i delivered because i i was more informed from my own experiences i'm like actually this is not something to take lightly and you know the evidence to that is last year mental health disorders and, and mothers actually surpassed hemorrhage and high blood pressure disease as the number one cause of pregnancy-related death in our country at 22 percent. It is it is a huge, huge problem. So as far as the, the knowledge that your wife is bringing to this in the doula community is that we can't keep on minimizing mom's experience of birth there is a very real disconnect there if we if we don't take into account the person being healthy and in our country the culture is really to surround the pregnant woman and then afterwards it's like good luck i mean we have no no <laughs> official maternity leave policy in this country <laughs> you know it's it's terrible there's
2: a big cliff once the baby comes out. yeah it's
1: it's really difficult
0: it, it's, a, it's a strange community, especially if you look throughout the world. The U.S. does things very differently than Europeans, is different than Asia. Mm-hmm. And not to say that everybody else is better or whatever, but we, we're behind, I feel like. And that's maybe just my opinion. I'm not a doctor, so take it for what it is. <laughs> yeah. But we're not doing things in a way that's going to help promote, you know, mother's health, baby's health. And this kind of awareness that you're taking this holistic approach with your product. So you're not just selling a piece of technology, but you're selling peace of mind. It sounds like exactly people, the ability to feel good about themselves, to understand that they're doing a great job because for a lot of new moms, and once again, I'm not a mom either. I'm a dad, but for a lot of new moms and new parents overall, you don't know how you're doing. You think you're struggling. You think you're having issues and you don't know how well it really is going. And I know with my first daughter, I was just it was not a great birth experience. It had to be an emergency C-section and oh, all kinds sorry. of other issues that could have worked out better if we knew more than we did, but we didn't know. Helped get my mm-hmm. wife in the dual state. But yeah, for about the first three months of having a baby before I deployed, I had no idea what I was doing. And I've been around babies my whole life. That's the funny thing too. You're like, I got this. And you are like, I don't got this.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Throw in some sleep deprivation with all of that yeah. too. and <laughs> You really don't got this.
0: Yeah. yeah. So the the fact that you can look like, okay, at least I know that what I'm doing for my milk supply is giving my baby what they need and I'm on the right track. That's going to be huge.
1: Yes, we agree. Yeah. Yeah. We can remove that
0: anxiety. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And you know, every baby's different. And one of the other important things is when we help people figure out how they're doing, you know, it was really important for us to not measure people against, you know, public health goals to, you know, to start at least, unless that was something they wanted because we feel like there's this comparing notes piece that adds to the anxiety where, mm-hmm. you know, you're calling up your friend and you're like, oh, how much milk are you getting out of the left side? You know, like how often are you feeding your baby and how much formula are you giving? And everybody's judging everybody. And, you know, it's really hard to fall in the trap of not feeling like you're enough because we're like, well, you should breastfeed for six months exclusive or you're failing at this. Um, and so it's really important for us when, when we have people onboard into the Libby platform that you set your own goals. Are you 50% formula, 50% breast milk? Great, good for you. You wanna maintain that? Great, we'll teach you how to do that. Do you wanna increase the ratio you know, to more breast milk or less breast milk, whatever works for you? Great, we support you. And we just want you to make an informed decision. You know, So if you are gonna supplement, you're doing that knowing that supplementing can have an effect on your milk supply. And so you can do it in a way that um, gives you maybe some rest, you know, a lot of people actually do need to just sleep a little bit to recover. Um, but you know, their body also needs that signal. If the the body missed a feed, you know, we need to somehow stimulate the body to make sure they don't lose that supply. Cause it is the supply and demand is actually pretty quick. Um, your milk supply adjusts fairly quickly. So if you start adding in an extra bottle somewhere during the day, your body's like, Oh, she got this, you know, (laughs) we don't need to make any more milk.
0: That's amazing how the body works.
1: I mean, it's it just is. So it's incredible.
0: something uh, I never thought about before having kids, but you're like, wow, you can really just create a life, sustain a life. You really don't need a whole lot else. So that's just amazing how that works.
1: Mm-hmm. Totally agree. Yeah. yeah I, I mean, know. and we just really feel strongly that everyone has a right to, you know, have a, a better and healthier experience with this, you know, and I think part of the problem is miseducation. Um, and it really is a privilege to be able to get support in the postpartum period. I mean, right now the way insurance payers are set up, you know, it, it, for OBGYNs for example, you know, we cover one postpartum visit and usually it's at the 6-week mark, way past when you've lost all your milk supply, you're, you know, super depressed and you're, you know, in a desperate mode, you're going back to work, you don't know how to store milk. You know, there there's so many holes in the Swiss cheese and We're just trying to close that gap in that early postpartum period, you know, to have healthier families, really.
2: Well, and I would say, too, like the other thing that we're combating is, you know, you can get on Dr. Google and and pretty much find a lot of misinformation for whatever's going on in your scenario, right? Um, And so the idea being we want to try to just keep reassuring people and removing that anxiety. of you're doing well, you're doing good, you know, like you're tracking where you need to be. Or if you're below it, here's how you can get there.
0: And I think you guys have definitely captured the state or the thought of you are who you think you are. So if you think you're doing bad, you're probably going to start doing bad. Your body's going to follow your thought Mm -hmm. process. So if you can reassure yourself that you're doing the right thing, you're going to end up on the right path. And something else I think is awesome to talk about is it's not exclusive. You're not saying breastfeeding is the only route because there is no right answer. That's something that drives me crazy about society today. There's a right and wrong answer very few things have right and wrong answers. Most things have a gray area where you got to find what works for the individual situation. Mm-hmm. So that is fantastic.
1: Yeah, I totally agree. And, you know, I can't remember, I think it was Clinton Doyle who had a quote about this where she talked about, um, I don't listen to, I, I'm going to mess up this quote horribly, but it's something to the effect of I don't take everybody's advice on my life because it's my life and nobody else has been in my shoes. And so I'm the only one who really understands what I'm going through. So I need to learn to trust myself. And I mean, that's really at the heart of what we're doing too. We're trying to teach moms how to trust themselves and trust their bodies and also trust your mental health and your physical health. And if things are not going well and you need to make a decision that's different from what you thought, it's okay to change your mind. It's okay to change your mind, it's okay to change it back. Mm-hmm. And just give people the tools to do that in a timely fashion so that they still have choices. They still have choices and maybe you want to supplement for a little bit and you've got to get your sleep back, um, but then you want to go back to exclusive breastfeeding. We can help you do that. And you know, the the bridging the gap of you know trying to get that care, what I was saying before about it being a privilege, not everybody can afford a lactation consultant. Not every doctor is trained in breastfeeding medicine. So you, you might go for help and get bad advice. Mm-hmm. Um, I had senior attendings when I was in training who would be, they'd take patient phone calls and be like, how long you been breastfeeding? Six weeks, isn't that enough? My kids were fine. Stop worrying about it, just go to bed, <laughs> you know? And it's like, oh my gosh. <laughs> so, um, you know, but the fact that it's in an app and at three in the morning, when I can only speak from my own experience, but when I'm like sitting there feeding a baby exhausted, staring at this guy sleeping soundly, <laughs> with his useless teeth, uh, you know, um i'm not going crazy and i can be like hey i need help right now and i can find it um and the other really interesting piece to our platform you're they're not useless by the way they're not useless (laughs) i didn't mean that that was a joke but
2: they're useless repeating they don't make
1: milk because don't make milk so uh very disappointed in them (laughs) but we actually have a partnership with a group called the nest collaborative and the nest collaborative is a virtual lactation consulting company who has privileges in all 50 states and they can get same day appointments. So if you're really struggling and the self-help that we've built into using your data and your information to kind of troubleshoot on your own is not doing the trick, you can book through Nest Collaborative, through you know through our platform and, and speak with the lactation consultant and they do all the insurance piece for you. So you don't have to worry about, do I have to pay out of pocket for this? Do I have to go somewhere? Do I have to get a car seat, a babysitter, you know, do all these things like it's right there, same-day appointments to just get on top of the problem quickly, which hopefully will really help streamline some of the resources that have been missing a lot in our country, at least.
0: Yeah, that's fantastic. And I mean, you've probably watched the movie, some even, or documentary, me bring it up, is just going to be old news, but the business of being born.
1: Uh-huh. People just
0: don't understand that, you know, the medical industry in this country is not what it seems in a lot of ways. It's about making money to a lot of people, And, you know, I've not talked to that many doctors, so maybe it's an ignorant point of view. But the ones I have, you know, yeah, that you're taught at medical school that you have to patients are dollar signs and you have to get them through. You have to do what you need to do to make the money off of, get them out the door and then keep them coming back.
1: Yeah, I you know, I have several thoughts on this. I think a lot of people go into medicine out of, you know, a, a feeling of wanting to serve others. You know, most of us really do want to help our patients in some way, but you're right about there is a business of medicine that has kind of taken over, you know, and a lot of it has to do with insurance payment and reimbursements going down, down, down over the years. And in order to make your overhead to even bring home any money, you know, you you only have so much time, and you have these employers who are business people telling you, "Nope, you get fifteen minutes, nope, that's all you get you know, like and you have to see this volume, doctor burnout is crazy, then you have the covid pandemic, and then on top of that, I think you know from my lens, I would say most doctors are not you know trying to be in it for the money. most of them hate that part of the job actually it's it's horrible, and everybody wants to leave that model um but I think we're also dealing with this this internal. Guilt, I guess, or shame about how we have been doing it wrong for a while. And we didn't know it because this is what we were taught. You know, we didn't know that some of our behaviors, we were complicit in some paternalistic i guess for lack of a better word ways of deploying medical practices and not really listening to our patients and there's this whole medical gaslighting thing that i, I see a lot of doctors get very defensive about they're like how can they say this we've worked so hard we we, and we do it's yes and <laughs> yes we work hard and maybe there are things we could do better um and i think it's being open to that and grieving that piece for me, it was important to grieve, to be like, ah, you know, like I probably, yeah, I could have been more compassionate and, you know, but that was what I was taught. I didn't know I was doing anything wrong. And once doctors, you know, can, if they're in that boat, can open up and and find ways to to be curious about that and, and to acknowledge that maybe, you know, there were things they wish they could have done better and forgive themselves and then, you know, try to do better moving forward. I mean, that's, that applies to anything you know, in human nature, I guess, just being able to be curious about and open to change for your own behaviors, but it's, it's been a problem in medicine for a long time, but I do see it changing actually in the younger generations of doctors coming through.
0: Extreme emotional intelligence, Andrea, you have (laughs) transferred behavior on that way too many times. Yeah. You have extreme emotional intelligence and that's fantastic. That's what the world needs is more emotionally intelligent people who understand that you're not you're not stuck where you are, you can grow. You can be open to new opportunities. You can learn new things. And I'd imagine coming from the, you know, a doctor wants to take you 10 years to become
1: a full doctor basically, or maybe oh longer God. than that. It depends on when you start counting. Where, where, where are we counting from college? Let's say four years of college, four years of med school for OBGYN is four years of residency. If you do a fellowship three years after that, um, it depends on your specialty, but I'd say baseline 12 years if you include college. Mm-hmm. around 12 12.
0: years. You've done something for 12 years to get prepared. And then people are telling you you're doing it wrong. It probably not come as a very opening thing.
2: Or they're not even telling you you're doing it wrong. You get out and you start practicing and trying to teach others. And then you learn you're doing it wrong.
1: Or you get Google reviews. So now we've got the interwebs adding into this and you feel so exposed. You know, I, I feel like, in some ways, I was lucky to be in academia for so long because I had this big shelter of this big organization. Um, but people in private practice, you know, it is it is really difficult and it does affect how you practice because anybody can write a review about anything, true or not, and it's, it's out there and your reputation could just go to the toilet very quickly um, based on, you know, a very one-sided view. And, you know, who has the bandwidth with all the financial pressure and everything to answer every single thing. You're only one person. And you know, so I think the whole structure, I mean Brent and I talk about this all the time. We don't know how long this private practice model will last. But then if you if you aren't in private practice, now you are subject to these higher-ups or business people who then, you know, create more demands on your time and less pay. Um so I don't know what the answer is. All I know is like I'm I'm living in this environment of severe mental health crisis and burnout amongst physicians. Just, yeah, the private practice model just doesn't seem
2: sustainable. Um especially with uh, the approach or, or the the mindset I guess the younger generations are coming with, right? Like um I just don't see how this is going to carry on for 20, 30, 40, 50 years into the future. So. Yeah.
1: I mean, I think what he's talking about is there is now every It used to be that we were really like shamed for winning work-life balance in medicine. It's like, don't ever let them see you cry. Don't ever, don't ever show them you're tired. You show up and you stay until you are released. And all the new learners coming through is the opposite. I mean, they will totally advocate for themselves and be like, you know what? I'm sick. I need to go home. If I ever called in sick back in the day, you know, and and that's actually kind of hard as the teacher to be like, wait a second, I never got to call in sick. Can you get to call in sick? Um, and but I, I do think that's also really important for all of our, our mental health really to be able to be like if we all take advantage of you know the opportunity to take care of ourselves and igno- and it's okay to be sick it's okay to be human it's okay to need a sick day um, and maybe learn from these younger people who grew up in this environment where they they were allowed to advocate for themselves. Um, I think we'd all be a lot better off because everybody would be a little bit healthier and happier. So COVID did give us a little bit of that. And I'm grateful for the pandemic, for changing the whole face of medicine in that way, where we learned that we could work virtually. We learned that we didn't have to show up no matter what, just to show that we're there present um, or we're not good doctors. You know, that there was this kind of toxic culture that existed before all that happened.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's a crazy standard and the, the medical industry is one of those. I was in the military. Military, The military is one of those industries, too, where you show up no matter what. And if you're sick, yep. things to be. I literally had to show up to a formation while I was puking. Yeah. Before, so like You have to be there. I'm like, OK, it's not going to be fun for anybody, but I'll be there.
1: Oh, so, yeah, yeah. No, same, yeah. same as, as a resident. I mean, I remember coming in, driving. I would pull off the road to get sick and come back in. I was calling people and asking them if they could bring me meds because I needed to be there. And, you know, I remember residents walking around, they go in the back with the nurses and have an IV pole and then take the IV out and go see patients. I mean, at least with COVID, we knew it was so dangerous to get our patients sick, that that was the first time ever that the doctors were allowed to be sick. You know, they're like, please do not bring that here. That's bad PR. Do not, Do not be the pandemic in the hospital. But we still struggle with it because, you know, staffing shortages and whatnot, you're like, but am I really sick? Like, yeah. well, how and, sick are you?
2: <laughs> and, and due to the burnout problem that we're seeing, it's like, it does seem like that's becoming a, a bigger issue now, because whereas maybe before there wasn't as a, a big of a staffing issue, um, you could call in sick, and now there's a staffing right. issue, and who are you going to get to cover?
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it does... It does put a lot of pressure on the other people who are there. You know, there. Somebody once said, "I know I'm getting way off topic, but I I think this is really important." Wherever
0: you want
1: to go. One of my colleagues actually said, "You know, it's really interesting that in." elementary school, for example, if a a teacher gets sick, they get a substitute teacher. They don't take your entire class and dump it on another teacher. Like you call in help and we don't have that setup. So as much as we say, call in sick, you know, it's, it's fine. We have sick days. Nobody uses them because we know what happens. You know, we know what happens. It crunches the whole system and everybody else is stressed out and you feel really guilty because you know that your being sick has affected everybody's day. Um, and you know, it's, without any way, you know, I've always dreamed of like, I wish there was some sort of clearinghouse, house, an easy way to like find substitute doctors to just like sub in, or maybe we, we have a, a trading system where you can like help each other out in, in exchange for, I don't know, like a, a little bit of pay. I, I'm like, I bet people would do that. If, if I could take a chunk of my paycheck and put it aside and it's like an insurance plan for a sick day. And, and then, and then we don't feel so guilty because at least you're getting paid for the extra work that you're doing. But as it stands, there is no other person. If you're not there, you either cancel a bunch of patients, which definitely affects the bottom line, but then you're also getting the bad reviews online um, or somebody else has to pick up all that slack until you're better. And so it, how do you fix that? How, how do you have healthier mm-hmm. doctors when there's no system in place for a substitute doctor to fill in? You know, it's it's challenging.
0: Well, there definitely has to be a system where there's gotta be something out there and you'd wish that the business people would use their business acumen and actually figure that out. That's maybe somebody will for. listen
1: to this and figure it out for us. <laughs> redundancy. <laughs> yes.
0: Exactly. You gotta have some kind of redundancy or you know, a pool of part-time doctors who can jump up to full time. I mean, there's I know nurses have a little bit of a different model. They have a, with the PRNs or whatever mm-hmm. there are part-time nurses who can get called in for different things. So if you can do it with a nurse, you can do it with a doctor. You just gotta figure yeah. out how to make it work.
2: So we had this experience on a, a aircraft or, or a flight recently, um, and it, it kind of makes me think of this. Mm-hmm. Now there's a lot of too. things that uh, get pulled into the medical world from, you know, airlines and, and their practices, you know, checklists and such. Uh, but we're sitting on the tarmac in the plane. Everybody's loaded up. Flight attendant gets sick. And there's another doctor on board. This is when we were flying. to mm-hmm. Costa Rica. There's another doctor on board. And he's like, eh. I don't. I don't know. I think she probably shouldn't fly. And I think they finally got somebody from the airline to come out, one of their physicians, and they checked her out. Right? Like, yeah, we we recommend you you go home. Like, you know, you're gonna have problems in the air, and then they're gonna have to divert. Like, it's just a bigger issue. Yeah. So, you know, they they call up whomever they call up, and you know, get a new flight attendant sent out. And they're, you know, I think we sat on the tarmac for an extra 50 minutes or so. so like, normally they have them just kind of here on site. There's ten or however many they have sitting around, you know, because this type of stuff happens, people don't make it, they get sick, they get injured, whatever the case may be. And so they gotta sub another flight attendant in. So they subbed another one in. I think this I think ours maybe had to drive in from somewhere else. Mm-hmm.
1: It was a long, <laughs> a long wait on the tarmac. They,
2: they lived nearby and they had to drive in, but um because I was like oh, that's definitely a lot longer than it would normally take to traverse the but They they had a system for it, though. Yeah, but the point is, yeah, there's a system in place that when this occurs, somebody is available and they come in. There may be a mild delay. You know, we still made it to our destination roughly on time. I think we were like 15 minutes late, so, you know, it wasn't even a big deal in the end. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, I think the other big glaring question that would come up for the smart business people is, who's going to pay for this pool, you know, because right now, there's a premium rate for PRNs and for per diem doctors. And, you know, already, I mean, again, COVID, every hospital system suffered from that. You know, we we lost a ton of money across the board just from having to cancel surgeries and clinics and things like that. And so all these huge hospital systems are millions of dollars in the hole. And now you've got a burnout workforce, too. And everybody's leaving in droves. Who is going to pay for I think it's a great idea. I think we should have a PRN pool and maybe a national PRN pool where you can just, you know, pick somebody and they can go in and, you know, be parachuted in and just drop in and, and do what they need to do.
2: It's like Upwork, but for doctors on standby.
1: Yeah, I mean, I could do that job. That'd be fun. But um, it, think- it's a big, it's a big ask, you know, and yeah. credentialing. Credentialing is another huge yeah, is actually- piece. You have to be credentialed to work in the hospital. So we would have to update the way hospital credentialing, you know, happens. So it, it's a, yeah, but it would be great. I think it would make a huge difference for, and, and I I don't really think it's a money thing. I think what they're seeing now as physicians now, especially the new ones, boy, you can't pay us enough to work like that. <laughs> we don't want to work like our, you know, older attendings used to work it was horrible they see like 80 patients a day yeah they made a million dollars a year but like who wants to do that who wants to be a slave to the job like that okay. nobody wants that anymore but now we're stuck in this system that was built for that type of worker for somebody who works like that who has a stay at home partner taking care of the kids and and doing all that and we're seeing the modern families coming through and being like no I want to be home I want to participate in my family you know it I don't wanna outsource everything and I don't have to. Um,
2: well, and I think too, in broader sense, you're seeing workers in, in general across multiple industries move towards that idea, right? Like, uh, what was it like? I think Adam Grant had posted something the other day. It's like, you know, the stop making your employees drive in five days a week. They're like, the that's gone. It's hybrid is where it's got at. Um, so it's like hybrid workforces. I personally prefer remote, but yep. <laughs> I'm like, you know, we live in Atlanta. I calculated out one day, I used to commute every day to a job and I'd spend on a good day about two hours in the car, you know, both ways. So two hours total, 10 hours a week, you know, you extrapolate that over a whole year. And I'm like, oh my God, I'm spending like weeks in the car.
1: Yeah. Well, and I think, you know, that, that also brings up, I forget what, who published this calculation, but I'm sure you've seen it, Casey, there's this thing where it looks at how much time you spend with your kids and like your life experiences over time. And then, you know, as you age, how uncommon it might be that you would have X experience. Um, and so when we just talk about our five children, you know, we're like, oh my gosh, we have a 14 year old. Like we only have five summers left with her. And then it just jumps off a cliff. Like the the number of days that we have with our kids are, are
2: finite
1: finite and yes, you know sure, like and yeah. life is short we learned that too in the pandemic life talking, is short and
2: i was talking to the seven-year-old the other night and you know trying to convey to a seven-year-old as best i can the idea that you know if you live to be 100 the parents were really only in your life every single day of your life for maybe 20 years if we're lucky like and then you know i see my parents a few times a year you know, like it's they live six hours or more away it takes a lot of effort to get in the car and go there get the kids find a free weekend when she's not working or we don't have something else going on that we can go do that so like it becomes very difficult it does
1: yeah so you know i think that that goes to the yolo point i guess of you only live once i, I think brent and i are very aligned in our values of um we've got nothing to lose and mm-hmm. you know everything to gain from just putting our dreams out there. And we both were feeling quite trapped, I don't know, probably five years ago in mm-hmm. in our jobs and just feeling like, okay, we worked so hard to get here. And this is it. This is, this is what I'm going to do till I'm like retired. You know, like it's, I don't know. I, I think there's this yeah. disenchantment piece of, because I, I honestly, I feel like I buried my head down probably like most people. And I was like, five years old, I'm going to be a doctor. And I just like trucked along, check the boxes, you know, like I'm going to have babies check. I'm going to get married, check, you know, get the house, get the schools. And I was like, I am killing this. You know, it's awesome. And then I woke up one day and I'm like, I have no time. I don't even know who I am anymore. I I, I've done everything for everybody. And is this, you know, is this it? (laughs) And, you know, we, we talk about travel, for example. And, you know, we we talked about spending time with the kids, but we love to travel and we will sacrifice a lot of things just to be able to travel because that fills our cups. And it's, it's very important. And we know, you know, when we're 80, if if we're lucky enough to make it that far together, you know, we probably won't be trekking through Peru, you know, so we only have a finite amount of time to even we're do those things those
2: viking cruises going down the danube or something. <laughs>
1: the easy trips
0: <laughs> uh, so you guys definitely get it like so you're speaking right to my heart there and that's a, a lot of people we're roughly around the same age i'm not going to guess at everybody's precise age i should know brands but i think i've forgotten at this point <laughs> but you know we're all about in our 30s and that's where our generation is starting to hit a wall and like you talked about like everybody puts their head down like i was in the military for a decade plus This is what you're going to do for 20 years, just like everybody else does. You're going to retire. And at some point I was like, this, this isn't for me. I had a friend who was a police officer, same way. This just isn't for me, but you, that's what you were told as a kid is that you pick a career, you stick with it for 20 to 40 years. And that's, that's how life is supposed to be. You go to work, you come home, you go to bed, you wake up, you go right back to work. That's not what our generation wants. Mm -hmm. That's what drives the older generations crazy about millennials. Mm -hmm. Uh, I put the word out there. It's terrible to say, but millennials, it is a thing. It is whatever yeah but yeah you know it's not a crime to want to enjoy your family. It's not a crime yeah. to want to do something you enjoy in life. You only mm-hmm. get to live once and yeah if you're just miserable waking up every single day, find a different path.
1: yeah I mean, I will amplify what you're saying and add that you know as my my great i had a therapist who I quote all the time, she's just so good, I loved my therapist and um she worked with me for a long time on some of these millennial mindset things. And one of them was, Hey, it's okay to change your mind. And, you know, I tell myself that all the time, like it's, it's okay to have said yes to something and then realize it's not for me and to change my mind and do something different. And I I don't think we were brought up with that value. Actually, we we were taught that, well, you committed now you're in. So you bet you made a promise. You made a promise. You were going to be a doctor who, you know, was in private practice for the rest of your life or, you know, take anything. And, and I think for me, at least it's been, this journey really opened up when I realized it's okay for me to say no. And if it's not a resounding, yes, it's a no. And I, it's important to have those boundaries and to identify like, what makes me happy and especially in in the world of social media too like i was really addicted to that outward validation it it almost wasn't real to me if i didn't get you know especially in academia is the worst about this right like lots of accolades and praise and national and international, you know, recognition for the work that I do. And, and I, the thing that happened, it was never enough. You know, it was always moving the goalposts. Okay. Now, now I gave an international talk. Now what, you know, now, now what award am I going to try to win? Now I'm going to try to get promoted. And there was just always another rung on the ladder and it just never quite, it was a quick dopamine hit and then it went away. And what I realized with my therapist too, is that Um, I was doing it for that external validation for other people to tell me that I was doing a great job because I checked all these boxes and did it all in that order. And I really needed to kind of quiet and, and listen to myself and actually practice not putting it out there. If I did something good, trying really hard to enjoy it for me and not even tell anybody, which was really hard. Don't tell anybody that you took a good picture. Don't put it on Instagram, you know, (laughs) just enjoy it for you because you like it.
2: Well, and part of this too for me is um I agree, like you know it's okay to change your mind and, and you know we teach our kids that the other thing that we're trying to teach them is grit,
1: mm-hmm. and like these
2: are two ideas that can be kind of diametrically opposed a little bit, but I think the way that we do it is you know, like the seven year old uh one that you know we did this time last year we were doing soccer, and she would go and to practice and play with the daisy, the dandelions in the flat, uh, field, right? She wouldn't actually practice. And so yeah, I had to take her aside, just talk to her, like, hey, it's okay if you don't want to do soccer anymore, like, or, you know, after this season. But, you know, we, we're three games in, you know, we, we're kind of committed to it for this season. So we need to see through what we've committed to. And then if you don't want to do it anymore, we don't have to do it anymore. Like,
1: yeah, it's a balance. It, and having kids, I'm sure, you know, trying to – Teach that, encourage them to expand their boundaries. I mean, this is an adult problem too, right? Encourage people to be like, why don't, you know, we, we worry so much. The fear is so much harder than the actual doing of the thing, taking the leap of faith and trying something like, you know, limiting performance beliefs. That's the phrase I was thinking of. You know, we oftentimes, kids and adults will think of, well, I can't do this because of X. And um, I went to this leadership conference one time where she actually had us all identify you know, our limiting performance belief that held us back in our careers. And she actually made us go through this exercise of like a shopping bag. And she's like, you bought that idea. You're going to return it. And we went through the act of like saying, you know what? Um, I don't have to do everything or, you know, the whole world will fall apart. So I'm giving back that idea. And, you know, I, I'm not accepting that anymore. Um, And so, you know, I think, all of these, these things interplay. We try to teach them to the kids. And when it comes to soccer or, you know, our eight year old yesterday who said he can't ride a skateboard because he's scared because it has no walls, but he's willing to drive a car, <laughs> so, you know, trying like to do t- these
2: is significantly less safe. for an <laughs> um,
1: It's a balance of like, yes, you um, we want you to try new things. And, you know, like what is behind that fear? Why are you saying that it's, what are you scared of? And, and is, is that valid? You know, I mean, of course it's valid for him. Who are we to tell him what he's feeling, but um, the grit piece does bring in another layer of like some sort of accountability, I think is, is maybe what we're trying to teach. Like, it's okay to change your mind. And, you know, there should be some sense of accountability for things that you do commit to. And how do you know if you didn't actually try it all the way, if you showed up to the party that you were nervous to go to and you came in, you're like, Nope, I di- I came and I left. I didn't even try, you I know, it from
0: the street. <laughs> So we're winding down here. So I got a final closing question for you all. And I've never had two guests on here. So this will be interesting to see if uh-huh. I get two different perspectives at the same time. So if you could go back in time and this is, I picked this time period because you know, it's a very pivotal point in most people's lives. You're going from middle school to high school. If you could talk to your 14 year old self, what would you say?
1: You want to go first or
0: you? Okay. I'll, think about that. I'll go first.
1: Um, 14-year-old self. Gosh, I, I was talking to my 14-year-old yesterday about this. And I, I'm like, I cringe to think about how I acted when I was that age. And I try to deny that. i They have a phrase for this. I don't know if you've heard it. Pick me, girls. I had to ask my kids what that meant. But it it alludes to kind of this fake personality of like, you're trying to, fit. we called it fishing for compliments. And I don't want to say I did that, but I might have done that back when I was that age. But, you know, you're so insecure going into high school and I, I worried about feeling accepted so much. And, you know, I think if I could go back and say one thing, it'd be, you'll find your people are out there, you know, maybe they're not in this one setting. Um, but some of the most rewarding experiences for me have been seeking out. And it's for me, it's been conferences, like trying out this new breastfeeding conference, or, you know, I went to the hospitalist conference and both of those experiences, it was the same thing for me. I was like, my people, like there are people like me who, who like the same things and value, value life outside of work and love breastfeeding. And, you know, like, I'm not a weirdo. I'm not weird for liking what I like. I am who I am and I shouldn't, uh, no shoulds or shouldn'ts, but I don't need to change who I am to fit into some mold. You know, I went to a very preppy Catholic high school where, you know, we had the all the sock trends. Like we, we, you know, you'd all try to dress the same and have the same hair and everything. And having uniforms. Oh, we, we worked on those. (laughs) We had trends within the uniforms, but I was so caught up in not looking different, you know, and hello, I'm Asian, you know, growing up in Alabama, I looked (laughs) different but I was trying so hard to blend in. And I think just you were okay. And you're, you're great just the way you are. And the, the differences are what make us human and special and amazing. And, and learning to embrace that early on, I think would have been awesome. It's hard to do, but you know.
2: Okay. So in terms of going from middle school to high school, I think in my mind, where I go is my advice to myself would be th- the world is bigger than your experiences in your middle school to high school. Um, I try to think back of how those may have defined me as a person nowadays. And I feel like the impact is fairly minimal. It's all of my experiences in college travel partners, friends that I've made along the way that have really shaped me into more of who I am today than those experiences. And so I know when you're living in it, it's what's the analogy. You can't see the forest through the trees. Um, it's, they live in, you live in a bubble, right? Like our kids are living in a bubble. This is their world. This is everything, but There's other middle schools and high schools. There's other elementary schools. There's, and everybody's experience is different. And when you get out in the world, that's really where you create your, your life and your life experiences. And so I think that's kind of my advice to myself is just try not to get too hung up in these, this life or what people think here, because I mean, the world is so much bigger than what you're experiencing. And to that point that's why we kind of are trying to bleed our our love of travel into our kids and you know we're taking them on a trip and our winter break that's somewhere international that they've never been before so we're like we want to open their eyes a little bit to something different
1: yeah i mean i think we're both still so mesmerized when we go to other countries and i always am fascinated i'm like wow these people live here and this is their house and i wonder where i would live and where would i work and where would my kids go to school and I think that's so important to shaping your worldview and and your experiences and also not not to minimize what your middle school self is experiencing, but to get a little perspective from it and realize that, you know, that it's a tiny little speck in a huge, big world. And if you just broaden your horizons a little bit, you know, I think
2: my first international trip, I paid for myself and it was, I was in France, but I found myself wandering around and you could Walk down the street and people would have their doors open. You could see into their house, and I'm like, and to your point about like people live there, you're like that's their house. Like I didn't go in and wander around and like mm. open drawers, but I'm like, okay, you get yeah, insight pretty into pretty like pretty what's pretty going pretty on and how people live, and it's vastly different than your experience. And I I found that just fascinating.
0: No, those are both fantastic points, and you know something that I told my kids: you know, the first 18 years of your life feels like it takes a really long time. Mm-hmm. This portion does not seem like it takes long at all. Just yeah, you're going to be, be our age, age really fast. Exactly. <laughs> Do you even remember your 20s? No. Not
1: really. Not
0: really. No. <laughs> yeah. That's why I was Parents You watch TV shows and stuff like Oh, your 20s are such a huge time. My 20s were a blur.
1: Yeah. Oh, my gosh. I felt like I woke up and I was thirty, and I. say I
0: don't feel like you're
2: really an adult until you're like thirty or almost thirty. So like, yeah, it just kind of. I, probably like the biggest flirt. Of, yeah. You're you're a teenager, but you ha- are able to buy alcohol now. Like, yeah, that whole <laughs> decade
1: is is really
0: kind of. And at some point, where it's a car.
1: Yeah. <laughs>
0: so tell us what we can do to support Libby, or tell people where they can follow you.
1: Yeah, I mean, the the first place to follow our journey would be on our website, Libby.com, L-Y-B-B-I-E.com. If you want to follow my professional journey, which is, you know, kind of going in parallel with Libby, you can just go to AndreaBraden.com, A-N-D-R-E-A-B-R-A-D-E-N.com. And then, you know, finding us, I I guess that's the most, we we have an Instagram page. Our
2: social media
1: isn't. uh, we need to yeah, hire not
2: very strong at the moment,
1: but the next generation person to do our social media, yeah. not a uh, not millennial to do our social media. Yeah. But if you go to those websites, they're, they're there. there. Will be the social media link to one day,
0: worthwhile. I think we all jumped off the train on Facebook. We're like, okay, I can do this. Yeah. And then Instagram and Twitter is just like. Uh...
1: Yeah, I can't. I cannot do yeah. Twitter. I I don't know. I'm on, I, Facebook
2: I'm on anymore. I'm on Instagram, but like that's.
1: I'm on Facebook, but I use it
2: to post pictures of travel, that you know, friends and family can see it. But now,
1: now TikTok is where people get a lot of their knowledge, especially young moms, and uh, yeah, I find it so intimidating. Talk about video editing. That one is, <laughs> I I don't know. <laughs> that's a
0: platform I am not on, and I don't have any desire <laughs> to be on it. It's just too much. I think I
2: downloaded it, and that's as far as I got.
1: <laughs> I'm on it, but I neglected. I was going to use your
0: login to look at it.
1: Like you it go ahead. Time. I'm yeah. not using it. <laughs>
0: there any closing thoughts? Anything else you'd like to share?
1: No. I mean, uh-huh. this has been so wonderful. Thank you for the opportunity to to just let us talk this out. <laughs> this is kind of what we let do us, every day. Let us ramble. <laughs> let us ramble. We go on walks every day, and we this is the stuff we talk about every day. So it's great. We yeah. we love sharing these ideas and and also bouncing them off of you. It's. I feel like it's always, you know, there's always stuff to learn from talking to other people about their view on life experiences. So thanks for the opportunity.
0: Oh, absolutely. The pleasure is all mine. And if you need anything from me, just reach out and let me know.
1: Thanks, Casey. Thank
0: you, Casey. Thank you. I'll have a wonderful
1: day. You too. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Constructive Curiosity. Constructive Curiosity is presented by SFC Consulting. For all your career coaching, mental performance enhancement, and business management consulting needs, SFC has the insight to get it right. Visit sfcconsultingservices.com for more information.